So hello and welcome. Happy Friday. Today's Friday, January the 19th, and this is Backyard Beekeeping Questions and Answers, episode number 241. I'm Frederick Dunn, and this is the way to be. So I want to thank you for being here. I don't mind being inside at all because, as you saw in the opening sequences, it's freezing cold outside, it's snowing everywhere. Not only that, Buffalo International Airport was actually closed up tight. No traffic. I don't know what's going on right now, except that it's 23 degrees Fahrenheit outside, and that's minus 5 degrees Celsius. The wind is kicking around at 2 miles per hour. It's actively snowing. Wild birds are everywhere. They're coming to the feeders because we feed the birds. 91% relative humidity. So if you want to know what we're going to talk about today, please look down in the video description and you'll see all the topics in order. And if you want to know how to submit your own, please go to my website, thewaytobe.org and click on the page also titled The Way to Be and there's a form that you can fill out and have your topic considered. So the other thing is next Friday, the last Friday of January already, can you believe that? The uh, Q&A will be live. It's a live stream. So the last Friday of every month will be live streamed from 4 to 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, United States. So I want to thank everybody for submitting their topics today. And uh, what else can we talk about? I think that's about it. Let's get rolling. The very first question comes from Debbie from Charles City, Virginia. I've been keeping bees in the southeastern... I've been keeping bees in southeastern Virginia for five years. I'd like to transition from 10-frame Langstroth to 8-frame. At this point, I don't want to invest in all new 8-frame equipment. I'm looking for ways to modify what I have. I just listened to your recent podcast on follower boards. I plan to use these to reduce my boxes to accommodate 8-frames. Just purchased a 10-frame slatted rack to try, but now wondering how to close up the space underneath the slats. That will not be part of the 8-frame configuration, or do I even need to? So here's the thing. This is an easy question. I like it. So the slatted rack, first of all, if you don't know what that is, it goes on top of your bottom board. It creates a 2-inch space. It has slats in it that line up with the frames, so they come in 10 or 8-frame sizes. There's one right here, slatted rack. Do you need a slatted rack? Is it super important? No, it's nice to have, creates a spacer, gives your bees some area to hang out that's not right on the brood frames and things like that. And uh, do you have to do anything if you're going to reduce your 10 frame box to an eight frame? That means you've got two frames that you've closed up. And does the, does the slatted rack now present any kind of problem? I don't think it does. It just provides more hiding space for your bees. And uh, so the slatted racks are utility. They have a utility benefit. Uh, if you're using oxalic acid vaporization, if you're using the pans and things like that that you slide in on your bottom board, it creates a space so that you're not right up against your brood frames and stuff like that. So that's easy. If you're using instant vapes or provaps or things like that that have the quarter inch tube that give the oxalic acid vaporization introduction, you can cut a hole between the slats through the back and now, again, you have an area where you can treat your hives while you close up the front. So lots of advantages, not show-stopping either way. So you might even consider just not even putting the slatted rack on at all as you transition to your eight frame. 
And then uh, later you'll be eventually rotating your equipment out. Completely up to you, depending on what you think the advantage might be. Question number two comes up from Leon, Union City, Pennsylvania. If bees are totally out of honey stores, can fondant alone get them through the winter? I'm not far from you, apparently, so you know my environmental context. I have custom-made lids with 1.5-inch insulation board, and I use a piece of something similar to double bubble to lay over my traditional inner cover, and then I set my lid over that, and the foil sheet acts as a gasket, I feel. It's true. Double bubble. Great gasket material. Here's a problem. Okay, so fondant. Can fondant be the only resource for your bees and get them through winter? Um, that's a big ask of your bees because, first of all, fondant, I've referred to this over and over as an emergency backup plan. Let's talk about it really quick. This will make some people upset. Sorry about that. Hive Alive fondant, two pound pack, two pounds, four ounces. Goes right on top of your inner cover, cut a little hole here, bees have access. They consume it. It can get them through winter. Now, they'll be deficient. So in other words, if you didn't save enough of your resources on your hives, that's number one. You want to leave enough honey on. I just did a interview yesterday with Sherry from uh, Southeast Texas. And uh, you can find that link in my, uh, on my main page on my YouTube channel because we shared that yesterday. But um, we talk about feeding and getting your bees through winter and the resources that they need and uh, leaving enough honey on your hive to get them through winter. That's your number one goal. So what I mentioned there was I stopped taking honey or any resources off, even my most productive hives, at the second week of September. That way I have several weeks, last couple of weeks of September and into October here in the northeastern United States. That is enough for your bees to replenish what you've taken, or at least to build up enough resources, unless the weather really goes bad. Um, they can build up the honey resources uh, from the remaining floral resources in the environment, and uh, they can get enough stored up to get them through winter. This is also why I don't take a spring harvest, because the first thing that your bees are trying to do in spring is build up enough resources to get through the following winter. They do that early because they're also swarming in spring, or maybe you're dividing colonies or making splits and you're doing walkaway splits, or you're trying to get more colonies of bees with whatever method you happen to have. And this puts a demand on your bees, which means if they're brooding up, they're not storing a lot of resources because as they're bringing resources in, they're consuming it. So as the beekeeper here in this area and for Leon, uh, 45 to 50 pounds of honey, uh, in a box over your brood box. So if you've got a deep brood box and you have a medium super, that medium super, if it's full, wall-to-wall -wall honey going into the first couple of weeks of October, I think you're good to go for all winter. And that's when your fondant becomes an emergency resource. That's why I say it over and over again. It's an emergency. Your bees are going to die without it. So in other words, malnourished bees or dead bees. And the other thing is, um, historically, if you look back at some of my early videos, we put rapid rounds up there and we filled them with dry sugar. And the bees were consuming dry sugar. The thing is, colonies that were not consuming dry sugar were weaker colonies. In other words, they were the ones that needed it the most. 
So a lot of energy gets put into metabolizing dry sugar. And a lot of people will say, yeah, but you put up dry sugar and it acts as a desiccant. It's like putting a desiccant pack in there and the moisture that goes up to the top of your hive gets collected by your dry sugar and then that turns into a sugar brick and a candy brick and then your bees will consume it. So first of all, I do want to put that into perspective a little bit. If you look up the moisture holding capability of sugar, it really doesn't function very well as a desiccant. And that's because it can only take on about 1%. So let's put that in perspective. If you had 100 pounds of sugar on, which nobody does. But if we put 100 pounds of sugar on, it could collect one pound of water. 16 ounces. That is nothing. Okay. So we don't count on the sugar to dry out your hive or to collect or concentrate moisture in the hive. It just doesn't do it. It doesn't have the capacity. If you want to do desiccant, you have to use actual desiccant, which I don't even recommend. The whole point of avoiding that is to have an insulated inner cover, insulated top, so that condensation doesn't form there anyway. There will be some condensation, which will cause your sugar to stick together, but the bees have to metabolize it. Roughly 40% of their energy gets used to invert the sugar. They have an enzyme in their bodies called invertase, and it's going to take the sucrose and it's going to turn it into fructose and glucose. So the more steps involved, you need a strong colony to do it because now they have to metabolize it. The other end of that is there's a step down. We can't put on liquid syrup on top of your hive in the wintertime. It won't work. Here's why. Um, first of all, the liquid is really cold and cold liquid is hard for your bees to metabolize again because remember the heat, the secondary heat off of your cluster of bees, if it's up in a feeder shim, it's probably much closer to the outside temperature. Therefore, the only feed that gets warmed up enough for consumption and for your bees to metabolize is what they're in direct contact with. So if it's in a liquid form, inverted jar or something like that, I personally would never put an inverted jar of honey or heavy syrup on a hive through winter where it freezes. So that's out. So the happy medium is fondant. Fondant is not as dry as sugar and it also is inverted. Therefore the bees can now take it from really a semi-liquid state and then they can metabolize it quicker. So it's a step up from dry sugar. So now when you use the fondant, what's in the fondant? So then it is a carbohydrate. It's an energy source. It's just to get them through. So right now we're coming up on the end of January. We have to get our bees for another six weeks, right? And just look outside. The weather's really bad right now. The good news is the more of a state of torpor the bees are in, the lower the metabolism, the lower their need for resources. And this is also why those who are living in areas where there are dramatic temperature fluctuations. So 16 degrees Fahrenheit tonight, but by the end of the following day, 70 degrees, that's demanding for the colony because they're going to get active. They're going to break torpor. My most successful winters have been cold, consistent winters without a lot of breaks in between. So there's a lot to think about, but the reason I say this in response to Leon is if it's the only thing, maybe they'll make it, but if they make it, they just barely make it. And here's the thing, without everything in the resource or the food that they're consuming, then they really don't have much of a chance. So 
I hope they're strong. I hope they do it. And insulation is key. But uh, fondant is what I would put on. Now here's another thing. I haven't tested this fondant. But uh, I was at the North American Honeybee Expo in uh, Louisville, Kentucky. And Strong Microbials had a fondant there with probiotics. Rocket fuel or something like that they called it. But it looked good on paper. And I did interview them and talk to them about it. Uh, there have been no publications about it, so um, Hive Alive is one that I've promoted because I've known about it and I've had it on my hive since last winter, and it's doing well now because it's showing that the bees are consuming it. That's a great sign. If your bees have the energy inside the hive to get up inside that packet and consume your fondant, and if they're about 30% through it, that's a perfect world in my book. The hives that are in trouble are the ones that have not touched it at all. So if you look through the top of the plastic, we haven't let any of the heat out of the hive. We've just looked at it. And if they're not consuming it, then hmm, there's probably a problem. So Strong Microbials put out a fondant with uh, probiotics. So if you could go to their website, read about it, look it over, and see if that's something you might want to try out too. I have no background on it. I have not tried it. I do have some. And uh, I wanted to do kind of a test with one of the split feeders to where like the Cerasel feeders, they have cavities in them, so the bees come up on warmer days and they get in there and they can get those resources. So if you're thinking, well, on a warmer day, they're going to go out and forage anyway. Well, if there's no nectar to forage, the warmer day, they'll forage inside the hive. So that's the other thing. A warm day might come around and hit the high 50s or low 60s Fahrenheit, and your bees might be able to fly out and go after stuff. But if it's raining then, they're not going to get nectar, so they're not going to replenish their energy resources. They will go after water. They'll be drinking water right off the landing board when the snow is melting and when it's raining and stuff like that. But there's another layer of an opportunity to have fondant inside the hive. Now your bees can access it when they break cluster and they move around. So a lot going on there. If you have used the strong microbials, write something down in the comment section. How did they do it? Did they go after it? Did they consume it? Have you tried, you know, a shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder comparison to see what the bees demonstrated a preference for? That's my plan. But of course, it will be later in spring, and it will just be a plan to see, you know, if one attracts them over the other. I do like the idea of probiotics and things like that, things that are good for your bees' microbiome. I think that's great. Looks good on paper. Now, does that play out? I don't know. So I couldn't find any studies on it. The other thing is um, a lot of people want to put uh, pollen patties and things like that on protein patties. But remember what they're really lacking. What will really wipe out your hive is a lack of carbohydrates. So if they're lacking sucrose, which is converted, inverted to glucose and fructose, so then they can metabolize it. Um, if those things are missing, nothing else would matter. Those are number one in providing them with the energy that they need to survive and do the work that they need to do inside the hive. Primarily keep themselves warm. We're going to talk about that at the end of today's conversation. Question number three comes from Emil. And it says, uh, I bought the Swarm Reacher. I will try it out this spring. I have a question on your point of view about removing snow from your landing board. We got three inches of snow and the landing board is covered. I have upper entrances that the bees use in winter with hive live fondant on top of the inner cover. I am inclined to leave the landing board in entrance alone. 
As I know, snow is an insulator. What are your thoughts? Yeah, snow is an insulator. In fact, when we had the really cold temps and the high winds and everything else here, we did not have deep snow. That was kind of a problem. Now, just north of us, lots of snow. Lots of it. So for once, the snow belt didn't get the heavy snow. It stayed near the, the lake and wiped out. They canceled a football game last uh, last weekend. Haha. I don't watch football, so it doesn't matter. Anyway, but yeah, the snow is so deep out there, and snow is an insulator. So if you get banked snow up against your hives, leave it. Absolutely. And I've done videos about this in the past. You get to walk out, get your snowshoes on, and I have them. So you can get out there and look at these heavy covered hives that are just banked with snow. First of all, the snow does protect it. Snow traps air. This is why it's so nice and quiet when you're out in the environment, too. After a heavy snow, nature is quiet. The woods are quiet. It's muffled. And uh, so that does insulate the hives. And it's coming from the windward side. So the direction the wind is coming from that otherwise would take that warmth away from your hive is banked with snow on one side more than the other. And you get to sit around and uh, look at the entrances and you'll see little vents. Now, I notice here that it says you have upper vents, upper entrances. So you don't have any concerns about your bees being locked into the hive. Uh, but they do move air, and the tiniest amount of air that gets moved around inside the hive is all they need to go through winter. There are lots of studies about humidity inside the hive, high CO2 levels, how much bees can handle, and it's extraordinary the oxygen, the oxygen deprivation that your bees can go through and still be alive in there. And uh, one of the reasons... I'm personally not recommending the top venting in the upper entrance uh, is because there is evidence that this um, high CO2 concentration, that this high humidity rate inside the hive um, and the oxygen deprivation and everything else uh, has an impact on the Varroa destructor mites ability to reproduce in wintertime by as much as 99%. So by ventilating your hives, not only do you establish then passive ventilation, in other words, the bees have no control over it other than to put their bodies in the way of it or something like that, um, but you also may be facilitating the reproduction of mites in winter. That's all I'm gonna say. Look into it, take your time. I won't shoot you down either way, but there are reasons why I no longer vent and no longer provide upper entrances on my hives. So the next part is, hey Fred, what if I only have a single entrance like you recommend and it's covered in snow right now? What should I do? Should I get out there and scoop it open? No, here's why. Your bees aren't gonna be doing cleansing flights. So they are ventilating on their own. So if you look and you see that there's that little gap, there's that warm air. If you have the advantage of a thermal scan or something like that, you'll be able to see where this warmth is coming out at the bottom. So the bees are moving just enough they like things the way they are. Now here's where cleaning out the bottom board comes into play. We got a warm day coming up and it's gonna be 35 degrees Fahrenheit, which is not enough to fly yet, direct sunlight on the landing board, you will see some cleansing flights. Therefore, when the snow is melting off and it's melting on its own, that's when you get out there with your little Be Smart Designs, blue plastic hive scraper, whatever you happen to have, and you make sure that your entrances are open and clear so they can do those cleansing flights because that's the first thing to do. Cleansing flights to get out there so they can eliminate all the waste material that they've held on board. The second thing they do is they'll go after water like crazy. You'll see them drinking water everywhere. 
And then the last thing they'll do, and this is a sign of a really healthy colony on a day when you can have cleansing flights, you'll see them dragging out dead bees. That's like their afterthought. So cleansing flights, water, removal of dead bees. And you facilitate that. So on the days when it's warm enough for flights, if you see any of your colonies flying, check all of your entrances, make sure they have a clear egress route in and out of their hive. Otherwise, really cold days like today, just let it be covered in snow. Trust me, there's air, they're getting it, they're doing okay. You can trust me, seriously. Question number four, this comes from David from Westfield, New York. Second year beekeeper. I have five colonies going into winter. Two 20 frame lands hives, two six frame swarm boxes. Yes, they all have insulated covers. And one observation hive that is in the house. This fall, we got another 20 frame lands hive. Couldn't help ourselves and it's empty. Question is, can I move my colonies around the apiary during the winter and will the bees accept the move when they wake to do cleansing flights in spring. My idea was to put the six frame swarm box into the empty 20 frame lands hive to overwinter. And once activity starts in spring, move the frames from the swarm box into the 20 frame hive. Thus avoid moving bees 20 miles away for a brood cycle. 20 miles, that's, that's a lot. Anyway, so here's the thing. Is it a good time to move them right now? Yes, while your bees are in a state of torpor and the ground's frozen and they're asleep for the winter, it is a great time to move your hives around. Here's when you don't want to be moving your hives around. Once it hits February and they start foraging in a meaningful way and it sounds like every bee in your apiary is swarming because there's orientation flights and all of that going on, which happens in spring, that's when you do not want to be moving your hives. You have a big challenge there. So right now, while they're in a state of torpor and they're inside anyway, because it's freezing cold outside, it's time to move them. Perfect time to move them. And consider things like uh, frost heave and uh, groundswell, things like that. Uh, it's a good time to look at low areas. Make sure that where you're going to put your beehives is going to be a great place where you have access to all sides of the hive. Uh, think about prevailing winds and everything else. It is preferred to have your hives facing south or southeast. Does that mean you can't have a successful hive that doesn't face south or southeast? No, I have them facing north and east and other directions, but the colonies that do the best here and have consistently done the best have landing boards facing the south. So south or south by southeast, either way, this is a great time to move them. So yeah, that's good. That's enough for question number four. Question number five comes from Brent, Tucson, Arizona. There used to be a thing called Old Tucson where you could go and see them reenact cowboy gunfights and stuff. I used to live in Flagstaff. I wonder how things are in Tucson. I've heard that worker bees will move resources within the hive. For example, clearing resources out of the brood chamber to facilitate brood rearing and egg laying. How do we ensure that the sugar syrup we feed to bees during dearth or emergency does not inadvertently get moved up into the upper supers intended for honey harvesting? Please assume that the supers are not installed during syrup feeding and that the super and that the syrup taken in is being stored within the brood chamber. 
hive configuration year-round, 10 frames single deep, medium on top. During the nectar flow, an excluder is added to the top medium box, then the supers on top of that as necessary. Okay, so here's the thing. I don't feed all of my hives. <clears throat> so here's, uh, there's a lot to think about. When are bees moving resources around? And here's the thing. Uh, often you can tell if you're queen right, for example, because they don't tend to backfill right through all of the brood. Where this is kind of an indicator to kick off an inspection for some beekeepers. If you see that they're backfilling nectar into every single available cell and the brood frames are wall-to-wall -wall nectar and you see the shiny, they're uncapped, right? And uh, they fill the brood area completely. Time to look to make sure you still have a queen. Because when a laying queen is present, they very rarely do that. So this moves me on to the next part. It is true that your bees will spread nectar all over the cells, all over the frames, and it seems wall to wall. And then later, particularly overnight, because they're fanning, this is also at a time you see a lot of bearding. A lot of bees on the outside of your hive, hanging on the landing board, collecting on the front. If you've got hive visors, they're up under the hive visors and they're just getting out of the way so that more ventilation can take place. And as they dewater their nectar, right, while they're converting it to honey, um, it takes up less space. So then they move it around and they concentrate it in different cells. Your storekeeper bees, I call them, move it around a lot. Here's when they stop moving it around, once it's capped. So once they put a wax capping over the cell, that means they've dried it enough to satisfy the bees that live there, and when they cap it, they stop moving it around. So, by the end of the year, they will consume what's uncapped first. So the likelihood that then, after you super it, right? So you're, you're coming into, a, when are you gonna super? You're gonna super during a nectar flow. So there'll be lots of new nectar coming in. The chances of them uncapping stored honey and then relocating that up in your new honey super when it could in fact be part of a sugar syrup that you've been feeding them. There are some beekeepers that put sugar syrup on every single hive they have. It is part of their normal routine. They've drawn a bunch of honey off and they backload their hives with buckets of heavy sugar syrup. So two to one, two parts sugar, one part water. And when they do that, it does get stored as honey and it can get capped. So, but the fact that it's capped means you kind of know where it's going to be because it would be extremely rare for them to uncap it and then move it. But you can't 100% guarantee that that didn't happen on some level, but they would consume uncapped resources first. And that's what they're doing right now, this time of year. If there's any uncapped honey in your hive right now, that would be a tiny miracle because um, once again, long-term stored capped honey gets consumed last. And remember, they have to get over the top of it as a cluster, warm the capping so the bees can even chew it open. It takes a lot of effort for them to chew the caps off of their stored honey and warmth helps them facilitate that. So if it's, um, you know, never feed during a nectar flow, obviously, why would you feed anyway? After it's over with, assume that the honey can be stored everywhere so your honey supers have to be removed and uh, they're not going to move it once it's capped 99.9% of the time. So I don't think it's a big concern. That's the end of question number five. Moving on to question number six comes from Mary from Carleton, Michigan. Is there any diversity in Varroa mites? 
Are the mites that survive up north tougher to control than the ones, say, in Georgia? Or are they the same? How far do mites travel on their own? I love these varroa destructor mite questions because these are things we all want to know. We want to turn these varroa mites loose, but here's the thing that's interesting about varroa mites, and, and this is why um, some bees are doing okay with varroa destructor mites in the same colony as them. For you, those of you who don't know what we're talking about, we're talking about the number one predator mite of the honeybee, Apis mellifera. They feed on the bees, they reproduce in their uh, pupa state, and uh, they take over your hives. Now here's the thing. Varroa destructor mites are vectors of disease. That is probably one of the worst parts of it, other than the fact that they also are consuming the liver of your bees. So they are sucking the fats out of your bees that your bees need to survive, right? So they're terrible on every front. Now, where are they getting the pathogens that they're spreading around to your bees? From other bees. So the mites are vectors. In other words, they're collecting the disease over here and the pathogens over here, and they bite their next bee, and they feed on the the pupa or whatever stage it is, or it's an adult bee, or it's a drone, and they're passing on these diseases, right? So the interesting part of that is they don't all carry the same diseases. So we'll hear, you know, they carry like one of the most prominent ones. Well, if you see deformed wing virus, one of the top vectors of deformed wing virus is the varroa destructor mite. Now, does that mean that every varroa destructor mite everywhere in the world and in the country carries that disease? Not necessarily so. So um, not every mite has the same disease load, therefore not every mite as, as detrimental mite to mite to the honeybees that they feed on because once again, they're not spreading disease. Now, as far as resistance uh, to treatment, so resistance to treatment, this is why it gets complicated. If you're a new beekeeper, this is super frustrating because what works down in Georgia may not work in Arizona. What's really effective in Oklahoma may not be so effective in Tennessee. So this is why all beekeeping is local and what happens because there are environmental changes. The humidity in the air is different. The temperatures at which you're treating might be different. Your bees' defenses against the viral load of the mites are also different based on the diversity and quality of forage that they have access to. So in different parts of the country, your bees might already be deficient or prone to disease vectored by varroa destructor mites, where in the northeastern United States or where I live, if we look at beescape.org and see what kind of forage there is, we have top quality forage and we have no dearth other than wintertime right now. So the more diversity and the more quality forage there is, the healthier your bees are to begin with, therefore they don't succumb to the pathogens vectored by the mites the same as they would in another area, say where you need to feed your bees all the time because in the desert Southwest somewhere, there may be a lot of dearth periods in the middle of July or the first of August, for example. And then your bees would likewise be deficient because they're dependent upon the beekeeper to provide them with resources to try to keep their health and well-being up and a healthy microbiome and everything else. The very best things for your bees come from natural forage, not fed by the beekeeper. So that's all I can say about that part, but here's the part that's interesting because I ask these questions myself whenever I get somebody like uh, Dr. Sammy on the line and you can find out about the road instructor mic because he's a big shot, right? Samuel Ramsey, if you don't already know who that is, look at some of his videos and talks about the road instructor mic. 
He's the king of mites. So anyway, how far do they crawl? This is a big number, right? So let's, let's turn loose some mites. Let's collect them. Let's be my grandson, get a bunch of them in a Petri dish, and let's find out how far can they go? How far can they walk if we just turn them loose? Well, people studied that. 30 to 300 meters if it's a smooth terrain. So what I think they did is they had a mite, you know, they, they put markers on them. They see them scoot around these surfaces and they add up all the distance that it covers in this lab environment, right? So temperature plays, humidity plays, how well fed was the mite before it took off on this journey on its own. So you get 30 meters to 300 meters. It can take them several days to cover the ground. So a mite without a host, a mite wants to live on a bee. It depends on the bee. It is a parasite. And the only thing it parasitizes is Apis mellifera, the honeybee here in the United States, right? So without the honeybee, it's going to die. So you have a dead out in your apiary, which a lot of you are going to face this spring. And some people will say, well, don't let that get robbed out, which is good advice, but they'll add on because now it's a mite bomb. Okay, well, it can't be. Here's why. The lifespan of a mite without its host is three to five days. So if that colony, if the bees died this month and uh, you start looking at it being robbed out maybe in February or March, um, there's no living mites in it, right? So that's the good news. They died. Three to five days, temp and humidity dependent. Do you know they can jump? If that doesn't make you even happier, varrodestructor mites can jump. They measured it. How high did they jump? One to two millimeters. That much. So they're not good jumpers. They're not good at surviving. Remember, they can't see anything. They're sensing their way everywhere. They're pheromone-based, so they're, they're sniffing around for a pupa somewhere or a bee that's young enough that they can get underneath one of their plates in their abdomen and start feeding on that, that what they desperately need, which they used to think was the hemolymph, but now hemolymph is not what they, that's the blood of the bee. It's the hemolymph combined with the fat stores of the bees. So it's a little bit of everything because it provides them the resources they need then to get off and scoot into a pupa state and reproduce again. And uh, that's what we'd like to stop. But it is curious. If you collect some mites, put them in petri dishes under optimum conditions and set your homeschool kids on a task of timing them to see how long before the mite stops moving around. It's great. You'll feel terrible, you know, for the little mites as they eventually just pass out and stop moving. But it's necessary for science. Collect them. Now, here's the thing when you have uh, a colony that's actively dying, right? And if it's got varrodestructor mites in it, and there's still live bees in there. That's not the time to pull a bunch of brood frames and start sorting them out and, and putting them in other hives. We already know now we've got a five day, so I would fail safe. I would isolate those for 10 days. I would put them through the freezer. If there's any chance that there's a varrodestructor mite alive in there, even one, I want to kill it. Because how many mites does it take to start off a new population of mites inside a beehive? One, one mite. That's all it takes to start a new population. Moving on, question number seven. Now this comes from Be Amazing Hives. It says, Fred, I am afraid next week's hemp may just be the straw that finally takes out my tiny nuke. 
They only had a few hundred bees and they have been surviving, but during this week's colder days, I counted a dozen or so dead on the landing board. Last ditch effort, going into this low four degrees, I decided to put inch and a half foam insulation around the nuke. Trying to keep the bees alive is stressful. The time to put your insulation around your nuke, I know this is a would've, should've, and could've situation. If you have a nuke, you have to insulate it, really. These nukes, they're tiny. You need 5,000 bees to live a, you know, they're social insects for this division of labor. They need 5,000 bees. And the reason that I say that you need the 5,000 bees is because that's what I was told. It was a magic number that they taught in school. And uh, just through attrition through wintertime, remember they are producing new bees, but this division of labor has to happen. You could have in theory had four or 5,000 bees uh, going into a nuke in the wintertime, but when you have a tiny colony of bees, they need every resource that you can give them. So starting with insulation on that hive because they're little. Now, I was shocked, I have to say, to find out that my queen on a stick experiment, because uh, I collected foraging bees, and I put them in a five-frame nucleus hive, and I just wrote them off, you know, which is bad. You know, it's bad beekeeping. I just wrote them off. I just said, well, it's too late in the year anyway. It's just an experiment. If they make it, they make it. Imagine my surprise when I was out doing thermal scans, taking advantage of the really cold weather, and I find out that that little nucleus hive with my carniolan queen in it um, is alive. They're in there. They're generating a heat signature, which is really amazing to me because there was no feeder shim on that nuke hive. So what did I do? Put a feeder shim on it. Because uh, they're doomed without emergency rations. They did not have the time to fill out a lot of resources to get them through winter. This is the kind of thing that shocks me from time to time. A little underdog colony that should not make it at all, should not survive, comes through springtime and you see foragers coming and going from it. It's amazing. It's a feel good thing. But uh, insulate, emergency rations. For me personally, that means fondant this year. And uh, we'll see how they make it. I'll be really excited. But uh, when you have a small colony like that, uh, insulate them. I put an insulation cap on all of my nukes. So that's a two inches thick foam. It's the rigid pink foam board that comes from your building center. And you can cut it, you can glue it up with wood glue. Works great. And uh, put a cap, an insulation cap on top of all your nukes. It works wonders. So question number eight, moving right on. This is Teresa from Oskaloosa. Iowa. Hello, <clears throat> Fred. Long time lurker. First year beekeeper. Sunday, January the 14th. Went out to check the hives. Cold, like so much of the country. Minus 18 degrees Fahrenheit. I was cleaning snow off the landing board. I opened up the entrance reducer on the mouse proof, it says. I didn't think I was clanging around like a snowplow. Suddenly I hear a crescendo of buzzing and a dozen bees came flying out and they promptly died. Yeah, because bees can't handle that cold. Minus 18. So they promptly died. They were trying to defend their hive against their beekeeper that was in there tearing open an entrance for no reason because remember all they need is venting right now. They need access. They need a clean out when they have temps warm enough to do cleansing flights. 
So I was so startled, I ripped my gloves off and it covered the entrance. At first, I was happy I had live bees. Then I started to overthink and wondered if they were stressed to be reaching, to be reacting so much. They should have adequate honey and hive live fond in it. Not that I can do anything about that now. Love your video work, appreciate common sense, but scientific approach and so on. Thank you so much. So this is something that I would like to caution some of the new beekeepers about. If you're going out there in the wintertime and you're going to manipulate your hives at all, no matter what the temperature is. And as I mentioned earlier on, if it's too cold for cleansing flights, you don't have to worry about cleaning out entrances. So long as there's the tiniest vent, the tiniest air movement, your bees will do fine. Now, when it does warm up and you do have cleansing flight temperatures, that's when you need to clear out the entrances and make sure that you don't have a bunch of trapped bees inside because now there's going to be a bunch of moisture buildup because with the rising temps, we get condensation. The dew point is achieved inside on the interior surfaces and off they go. <clears throat> so that was it. Question number eight. Now we're on to the fluff for today. And this led me to other questions because I was asked during an interview yesterday about the cold and uh, cold inspections of hives and things like that. So one of the things I like to talk about, we know the state of torpor, that's what they go into, that's what they cluster tight, and their metabolism slows way down. And then uh, one of the things I like to do is show pictures of bees frozen, frosted, you know, sitting on surfaces, landing boards, things like that. And uh, my grandson, it's really exciting. He wants to come, of course, today because it's super cold outside. I have no idea what to do other than to send him out to collect any bees he might find. When we bring him inside and they're um, in a state of chill coma, and that's not necessarily a scientific term, but it has been used in a lot of research in the past, going all the way back to the 1960s, by the way. So the question comes in, when you see these bees that they appear dead, they're frozen, they might even have frost on them. How could they possibly live? Well, they're in a chill coma. So here's the thing. I looked up the parameters of that because I thought it would be cool uh, just for the sake of knowledge, right? So your bees have a point where they get so cold, and this is where thermal scans come into play because often people open a hive of bees and say, well, they were dead anyway, they were clustered, and none of the bees were moving. Okay, well, none of the bees are moving, but they're clustered. If they're clustered, chances are, you had live bees, and I use that past tense, you had live bees because you just exposed them. Um, the thing is, they can be in a state of chill coma. In other words, their thorax can get really cold and they can still recover so long as eventually the temperatures come back up, right? And there is a point of no return. So this is part of what I want to share with you today. Honeybees cannot move when their thorax gets down between 11 and 13 degrees Celsius. That is 51.8 to 55.4 degrees Fahrenheit. This is thorax temperature, so you need a thermal scan to see it. This is also why bees, when they drink a really cold liquid, like if you put sugar syrup on your hive in wintertime and it gets really cold and they start sticking their tongues up there and sipping that down, they can actually go into a chill coma, right? So it cools their body and then they need to actively vibrate their muscles in their thorax to generate the warmth to recover from that. So 51 to 55 degrees Fahrenheit, they are too cold. There's something called a muscle burst. In other words, 
so they can get too cold where these little tiny activations of their muscles can't even happen, which are necessary to generate the warmth to restore the thorax temperature and bring them out of the chill coma. So listen to this, it's very interesting. <clears throat> which one can handle the coldest temps? The worker can go down to 10.6 plus or minus 1.2 degrees Celsius, which is roughly 51 degrees Fahrenheit. The drone can't take the cold the way the queen and the workers can. A drone, if it drops to 12.8 Celsius, which is 55 degrees Fahrenheit, keep in mind, this means the thorax was allowed to cool to that point. In other words, they didn't have the resources, for example, the carbohydrates necessary to generate the energy to keep those muscles going, to keep the warmth going. So if they drop below 55 degrees, this is why drones are falling off the mantle of your cluster of bees in the wintertime, for example, or why you see them laying all over the landing board while some of the workers are still scooting around, right? And then the queen can go all the way down to 10.2, which is 50 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, when they do that, <clears throat> they can shiver the flight muscles if they're above 10 degrees Celsius or 51 degrees Fahrenheit. So in other words, if the thorax cools below this temperature, it can become irreversible. So this is where it comes into play because I showed a picture of a bee with frost on it. And I said, wow, it doesn't look as bad as it seems because when the sun warmed up and the thorax was warmed, this bee actually activated its flight muscles and eventually flew away, but it had frost on it. So that means we had freezing temps, which would be 32 degrees Fahrenheit, right? So there is a temperature at which there's a point of no return. So for example, um, it's called cold death. Cold death occurs at minus two to minus six Celsius, which is 28.4 to 21.2 degrees Fahrenheit. So if you're doing a thermal scan on their thoraxes and they drop below 28 degrees Fahrenheit, they're done. Even if you warm them up, you know, put them on your kitchen table, in the sun, whatever you do, they've lost the ability now to reanimate those muscles. So it's called cold death. And the people that did the research on this, they were looking at the electrolysis. In other words, the um, bioelectrics. Like, for example, we know that our heart beats because it has a, an electrical stimulus, right? So our hearts are autonomous. They don't need our brain to tell them to function. In other words, they just function on their own. And there's a tiny electrical current that goes through it that comes from your body. Interesting stuff. So B is the same thing. Uh, there's this electrical, really tiny electrical activity that lets you know that they can fire their muscles and recover. So when they drop below 28.4 Fahrenheit to 21.2 Fahrenheit, so there was some variance, uh, there's no recovery. So if you're scanning them and all their lights are out, they're done. Now it's reversible if they stay above that 28, but they're in that uh, extreme torpor, that chill coma, 50 hours max. And then you can get them back. Thanks for watching. Hope you have a fantastic weekend.